But what, what I want us to do is I want us to understand something that, that where we're going is incredible. But to get there, we got to go to a Debbie Downer place. We got to get to a place that's going to seem a little bit like, gee, Kurt, you do know it's like Memorial Day weekend holiday, right? Okay. But I need us to get something in our hearts. I think the Lord needs us to get something in our hearts because of the contrast that it's going to bring, the victory, the freedom, and all of that. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about, okay? What if this is true? Oops. Um, no, no, it's okay. Did you get me back? Okay, there you go. What if no one can truly be a good Christian? What if that's true? No one can be a good Christian. Now, there's two ways that people are going to do on both ends of the spectrum, and then there's everywhere in between. When people first hear that, there's this end of the spectrum where people are going to say, I knew it. I knew I wasn't good enough. Right? I knew it. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Right? So you've got to get that out of your heart, out of your mind, out of your life. You gotta get that tape and shut it down, get rid of it and start playing the tape that God has for you, which is he values you. And that is to play the other side of the spectrum, which is to say that you're not righteous because you're righteous, you're righteous because God made you righteous because you believed in what he did for you and saving you, dying for you and doing this. Now that's good theology. And you've got to remember that theology at every moment, right? We've got to remember that our righteousness is his, not ours. But is there a thing that happens in us when we think of ourselves as righteous? Is there a potential that something starts to happen that makes us feel like I'm okay, I'm good, I'm good, right? And what happens when that kicks in? For 1,500 years, God gave us something called the law. And the law was simply this. This is the way everybody interpreted it. The law was, this is what you should do. And it's not that hard, 10 words. There's a lot of other stuff about priests and all that kind of stuff, but for us, it's 10 words, 10 simple little things. And they're not even like that controversial. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, honor your parents. I hope that one fits still. Uh, but you know, don't murder, don't cheat people and do stuff like that. You know, and honor God, okay? Pretty simple stuff. But the truth is, for 1,500 years, what God had to say after that was, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning not one person was able to live up to those 10 simple little rules. And then Paul comes along and tells us, here's what's really going on here. God was not giving us the law so that we could live up to it. God was giving us the law for 1,500 years to show us that we couldn't. Even those 10 simple little words, that's the literal translation of 10 commandments, 10 words. Even those 10 little simple words we couldn't keep for 1,500 years. So let me just put it this way. God patiently showed us for 1,500 years that not one person was ever truly holy. And what that taught us was that we need a Savior. We need to be saved, right? That was the end of the law was not something to live up to, it was something to discover you couldn't live up to so that you would choose to let him save you, what, he can, what only he can do, right? So now here's my question. Jesus has come and he's saved, right? 
But if it's been going on for 1,500 years, what makes us think that it's not still going on now? I really mean that. What makes us think that there still isn't a dynamic in life where God is letting us see who we are? Not to make us condemn, not to make us feel scummy, not to make us feel lousy, not to make us feel estranged from him. But what if he's doing it to make us know afresh all the time how much we need a Savior? In fact, what if it turns out that it's only when we get to the place where we realize who we really are and what he does that we get set free? What if the way that we live life, our Christian life, trying to be good, not to earn it, and I'm not talking, by the way, here, I want to make something really clear. I'm not talking about sin here. Because here's, whenever we talk about this kind of stuff, here's what people do. I know that I need a Savior because I know what I did last night. But I'm not talking about that at all. At all. What if there's something much, 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 much more fundamental that when we start to realize it, it is both devastating and liberating. <laughs> what if coming to know who you really are just really is ridiculous in the extreme? So much so that you realize that your only hope is the one who loves you, who saves you, who carries you. We're going to get to such a cool place here. I can't wait. Oh, Bill Weber, that is a great choice. Bill, welcome back. Love you so much. Um, uh, lift up the sermon. Lift up another church too, would you? Father, first, I ask that you bless the word to every person here. Lord, that your word would never be void. But I pray, Father, not just a lack of void, I pray for an explosion more for each one. Lord, that every person would go away more hungry Amen. for more. Lord, that they would not be satisfied. God, I pray that they would relentlessly, Lord, begin to take a walk to be everything that you want them to be. Lord, your word, Lord, it exhorts, it directs, it uh, brings us, Father, into correction at times, Lord, where we need it. And Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, that it comes alive and it brings fruit for all of us. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray, Father, that we would get hungry, hungry, hungry for more of you Amen. and not be satisfied where we are. Amen. Lord, I ask for miracles, Lord. Miracles in each one's life, Lord, that they would begin, to, Lord, to... Uh, just unveil, Lord, more and more of who they are, to be able to see, to get past, and scales come off their eyes, to see what you see, who you see, how they can be love in this community, Lord, that they Thank can make you, a difference in their families, Lord, in their Thank neighborhoods, you, Lord, and just at work and just in simple life. I ask you, Lord, bless the word Thank to them you, that that would be accomplished. Thank you, and Father, I pray for sunrise uh, chapel, Lord, Amen. at Sunrise Christian Center that Amen. is in Everett, Lord. I ask, Father, the work that you're doing there, Lord, the anointing that's there, Father, the outreach that is there, that you bless it, that you continue it, Lord, that you multiply it, 
and that you make an effect, Lord, in our community, in our state. I pray for, Lord, infection, Lord, in our communities with your love, with your truth. Thank in you, Jesus' Jesus. name. Amen. Thank you, Bill. We are in Luke. This is the passage where we are. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. That's the actual proper pronunciation of it. You'll hear it all the time pronounced Zacchaeus. I don't care. We know who we're talking about, right? He was a chief tax collector in the region and become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down, took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord, and if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now, where and what time is it that this is happening? We are in Jericho. Jericho is where triumphal entry starts from. We are in the final few days of Jesus' life. Okay? Now, in fact, we're so close, I want you to see this. This is the story that goes along with an explanation that is the last thing Jesus will do before the triumphal entry. And why is that important? Because when we hit triumphal entry, yeah, there's things that the disciples are going to learn. We've been talking about how Jesus has been discipling us, right? And yes, there are things that they're certainly going to watch and see and learn from. But the discipleship thing, while it's not over because of what will happen, the discipleship thing is no longer the focus. We're now into the passion. We're now into his death and resurrection, what it's about, and the facts and so on that will happen. So there's a shift in the narrative that's happening right now. We are essentially ending our master's level course. There is still more to come, and it'll take us a little while to get through it. But the bottom line is, is that where we are is, this, is, this story is the last story that's told before things change. They don't know that, but we do. And so we can look at it and say, if this is the last thing that Jesus did, what was he trying to do? What was he trying to get across to the disciples? Tell me, why would he do this thing with Zacchaeus and this next story of the 10 parable of 10 talents? Why, why would that be the last thing that he essentially does in the formal discipleship part of his life? Why? What's he trying to communicate to the disciples? Go ahead. It must be a vacation week. <laughs> Nobody, really? What's the story about? What's the story about? Yes, but even more than that. I mean, here, let's just, let's just look at it, right? Here's, here's the point of the story. A notorious sinner that salvation comes to. Because that's what Jesus does. By the way, salvation right there is a nice little pun on Jesus' part because his name is uh, Yeshua and Yeshua means God saves. Jehovah or Yahweh saves. And that word saves, it's in Jesus' name, 
is the feminine form of that word is the word for salvation. So here's what Jesus is saying. Salvation has come to your home, meaning me. I'm salvation. And I'm coming to your home, which will bring you into salvation. Isn't that cool? Salvation has come to your home, me. Not an abstract. This will become important in a moment. Not an abstract, Jesus. Right? Yeshua. Because why? What's the whole point of it? Because the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now, what's he trying to say to the disciples by having this be the last thing? Go and do the same. <laughs> this is what I did right up until the very last moment. So you go and do the same thing. This is what he's saying. This is what's important, right? Go and seek and save the lost, all right? Now, having said that, if we really want to understand how deep this story is, we actually have to look at another story that we've already looked at. Remember, these, this is two sections that form the last thing that Jesus did before the triumphal entry. There's one story before this one, and then there's one story, then the next story before that is a contrasting story. And think about this chronologically. This story happened yesterday. In other words, yesterday we're with Jesus, and on Saturday what happened was, is that a rich young ruler is how we call him, because it's said that way in one of the stories, but we'll find out a little differently here today. But a rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and it doesn't go well, right? Because of what Jesus says. And this guy can't do that. He can't get to that place. So here's, what, here's my point. Here's what the disciples are watching. Here's what the disciples are experiencing. Yesterday, this rich guy comes and has this bummer experience. And then today, there's another rich guy. You see it? And it's a big contrast. So we need to look at the contrast. So let's look at it. Now, this is 1818. See, we were at 191. This is 1818. There's only one story in between them. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question. Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must testify, not testify falsely. Honor your mother and your father. I just want to say that over and over. The man replied, I have obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard this answer, he said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions. Give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. Now, let's just, let's just go through it a little. We're moving not quickly, but I just want to show you something in this story. First of all, who is the guy? See, we think of him as a rich young ruler, because that's how we always talk about him. But what was he actually? He was a rich young religious leader. And he was a ruler. But he was a religious ruler. You see that? This is a religious guy. Does that contrast a little bit with the uh, Zacchaeus? Does that contrast just a little bit with the next guy? So think about the contrast in these stories here. Here's this religious guy who should have known. Now, what does he come to ask for? How do I inherit what? How do I do what? How do I inherit eternal life? Notice something. Notice what he's not asking for. Jesus. He's asking for a thing. An abstraction. He's asking, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I get what I want, which is eternal life? See that? 
So he's asking it on that abstracted level. Do you see it? Now, this is the coolest thing. I've said it before, but I just love this. Because watch what Jesus does. Because he loves this guy. And watch what he does. The guy calls him good teacher. Now look at how Jesus answers him. Why do you call me good? You know only God is good. Now what's he doing? He's saying, do you know who's talking to you? Because he goes on to say, but let me answer. <laughs> See that? Look, he would have said, you call me a good teacher, but I'm not good. But let me give a, let me give a, what he says is he acknowledges that he's good. He's saying, I get it. You're calling me good. I want you to understand who's answering your question because I'm about to say something to you that's going to be the most important thing you're ever going to hear in your entire life. And if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you'd be more likely to say yes. But you don't. So he gives him every opportunity to know. You see this? The depths of God's love, the depths of his outreach to us is amazing. But to answer your question, he goes to the law. You know the commandments. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, right? You know, do this, don't do that, right? So you know the law. Now, now watch this. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Now here's how we think about the gospel and Jesus and sin and all that kind of stuff. Not so much Jesus, but we think about the gospel and sin. And when, we're talking, when somebody says to us, they're good, we want to say, no, you're not. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? And Jesus could have easily said, well, you say you obeyed them all, but let me just point out like, you know, a few thousand times when you might have fallen a little short of the glory of God. See, Jesus could have nitpicked. But I think it's actually to this guy's enormous credit that Jesus precisely did not do that. Instead, what he did was, is he says, he acknowledged, he essentially ceded the point to him. Graded on a curve, however you want to call it. The bottom line is, you are somebody that has done better and more. You are a good person. You are somebody who's done these good things. You are. And so he doesn't fight him on that point. He just points out to him, there's still something missing. Now, I want to say something right here. Does this mean that everybody has to give all their money away? Is that what this means? This is, he knew where this guy's hold was. For everybody, it's in a different place. For a lot of people, it's in money. But there's other things. And he knows exactly where that place is. And what he's coming to him and saying is he's saying, I want you. And I can't have you because there's something in between us. There's something you've placed there. Do you see it? Isn't this cool? So what he's saying to him is, is, Look, I want you to sell your possessions, give the money to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. He's telling him, it's going to pay back to you. It's going to, good, you want good returns? I'll give you the best returns. Right? It's gracious of him. But now watch this. Here's the point. Come follow me. You ask me an abstraction. I'm telling you, it's not about the abstraction, it's about me. Do you know who I am? Follow me. Come into relationship with me. Do you see it? The guy at it, so he heard this and became sad because he was rich and he goes away. Now, this is the famous part of the story. When Jesus saw this, he said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, remember, this is on Saturday. And here's why that's important. 
Because on Sunday, a camel goes through the eye of a needle. It happens. A rich person enters the kingdom of God. On Saturday, it didn't work, but on Sunday, it worked. And in a contrasted way that is phenomenal. See, watch. Zacchaeus, a chief collector, collector, tax collector in the region, had become very rich. Think about that for just a second. How does a tax collector get rich, and why, did, why does everybody hate him so much? We all hate paying taxes. I hope you don't hate tax collectors. I think probably a lot of people do, but nonetheless, we should, right? They're just people too, right? But the bottom line is, here's what's going on. If you're a conquering entity in that day and time, here's what you're not doing. You're not trying to help these people be good. I want to say something about the United States of America and the wars that it has fought. As has been said, and rightly so, because it's factual, no country has spilled more blood so that other countries could be their own country. No country has spilled more blood so that other countries could be their own country. Back in this day and age, that whole thought was completely outside of the realm. Here's why the Romans were occupying Israel, to extract wealth from them. They wanted to eat more grapes and drink more wine in Rome. See? So what they're doing is they're extracting wealth, and there's a funny little thing about extracting wealth from people. If you extract too much, they become hopeless, and they're no good to you. They don't produce much. But if you don't extract enough, they start thinking of themselves as being something important, and they rise up against you and try and throw you off. So there's this magic sort of tipping point moment where the occupying power has to extract enough out of you to get as much as they can, but without demotivating you completely, but without letting you keep enough to where you might become a problem for them. Do you see this? Now, the way you do that, the way the Romans did that, and the Romans were the best at this, the way the Romans did that was, is they didn't go and collect the taxes at the point of a, of a spear. They collected the taxes by getting Jewish people to do it for them because they would know the culture and the people and all the stuff and they would know where money might be hidden and they would know the stories and they would be part of the community and all that kind of stuff. And so you can understand. And not only would they go and they would collect these taxes, don't think of them as taxes like you and I, this extraction of wealth. Not only were they, were they instruments of the hated Romans to extract wealth from me, but what they would do is you know, every once in a while, they would, they would say, hey, this guy can afford a little bit more, so I'm going to get a little bit more on top. And the Romans didn't care about that. that was, they knew that that was something that would help these tax collectors be better at collecting the taxes. See that? If we let them become very rich, they get very good at getting the wealth to us. That's what we care about. We don't care if they skim. We care about the substance of it. See it? So these people are hated. These people are not good Israelites. These people are like the worst scumbags you could ever imagine. They're turning on their own in order to enrich their very captors. This is like a really, really horrible person. They hate them. And so what they do, of course, is that they say, now, well, okay, excuse me. So what happens is, is Zacchaeus, now think about this for just a second time. If you're very rich, what are you used to having have happen? Do you run to meet somebody else or do you wait in your nice big house with all of your luxuries and expect people to come bow and kiss your ring? You see it? So right here we've got some clue that this is a different kind of rich guy. There's something in him that wants to see him so bad that even though he can't see over the crowd, he climbs up a tree. That is not exactly a noble thing. 
This is not the kind of thing that rich people do. Do you see it? But this is what he does because he just wants to see Jesus. Now, does he think that there's any interaction between him and Jesus going to happen whatsoever? Of course not. He's just going to be in a tree, and he's just going to see Jesus. What the? I, 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 you've got to love this guy. You have to. He's just wonderful, even though he's a scumbag. <laughs> Which is just a little bit of a key for what we're talking about here today. Zacchaeus. Now, when he says this, have they met before? How do you know me? Understand, he might have met him or he might have been pointed out to him. But you do understand, see, it's not like he has a Facebook profile that Jesus can go stalk and see what Zacchaeus looks like. Right? It's not like a Snapchat that he saw that made it particularly memorable. There's no Instagram photo of, you know, Jesus, you know Zacchaeus taking a picture of his last vacation. Right? You get it? So how does, how does he know who this guy is? If you'll look at the text, if you'll look at what's about to be said next, what's being pretty clearly intimated without being stated, so it's speculation a little bit, what's being intimated is the Holy Spirit has revealed something to Jesus, including his name, word of, word of knowledge. He knows something's going to happen, and so he calls out his name, and then he says, quick, why? It's Memorial Day, nothing's quick. <laughs> Who, what does he care about quick? Why not just, you know, come down from the tree and feed me? That's enough. Why does he say quick? Because Jesus knows something that they don't. And he's trying to interject something. Urgency. Jesus knows that his time is short and he's trying to interject urgency into what it is to go after people. You never know what's going to happen. In fact, it says it this way. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of the book, it says this way. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his slaves, us, what must quickly take place. Now, you could say, gee, that was uttered 2,000 years ago. That doesn't seem quick. It does to the person that didn't get saved because you didn't have a sense of urgency. He wants us to live our lives with a sense of urgency about the salvation of those that we encounter. How important this is, and to not miss that moment. To not think that I don't have to do it now because it'll come around again. Do you see it? He's interjecting in this salvation story a note of urgency that he wants the disciples and us to remember. But then he says this, I must be a guest in your house. Not... Zacchaeus, come down from the tree, quick, and feed me. Let, let's go to your house and have lunch together. No, he's saying, I must go to your house. Why must he go to his house? Because of salvation. It's to come today. See it? I must go there now because I have a word from the Lord. I have a word from the Holy Spirit. It must. This is salvation coming to you today. Right? I must go there for what, I, what it is that I'm doing. Because that's what I'm all about. Seeking and saving the lost. Now watch this. He's gone to be the guest, the, people, the, relig, the, the other religious people say. He's gone to be a guest of a notorious sinner. You know why? 
Because people that think they're not sick don't need a doctor. They don't call a doctor. And if the doctor comes, they serve them tea and wonder why they're there. People who are sick call a doctor to be made well. Zacchaeus understands this, and this goes along with the Pharisees. This is another time, Luke 5 we're on now. The Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Right? Now look, now look at this. Compare this, contrast this with the religious, the rich religious leader. Okay? How is Zacchaeus? The other guy is saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's saying this, it's important to him, but is there urgency in it? Is there joy in it? Look what happens with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus quickly climbs down, Jesus in, uh, took Jesus to his house, and in great excitement and joy. Can you see this? He's like a little kid. He's going, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Now think about it. This is a guy who has been estranged from the community. And now here's somebody that the whole community looks up to picking him. That's us. That's us. So he's filled with joy. He's filled with so much joy that it becomes action. I'll give half my wealth to the poor, and if I've cheated people on taxes, I'll give back four times as much. Think about that for a second. I'll give half of what my worth is away, period, and then everybody I cheated gets four times as much. This is quite likely going to bankrupt him. This is going to take him not to be a rich person anymore. Four times as much as what he stole, where's the rest coming from? That doesn't mean it's going to happen that way, but you get the point, and the point being, this person overflowing with joy freely gives all. And that's you and I, right? When we come to know the Lord, and, and it's, our, it's, it's early on, and we're like, oh my gosh, who you are, and everything. We just give him everything, don't we? It's just like, here, <laughs> what do you want from me? What do you want of me? Here, take my whole life, Right? So that's the story and the contrast. Now let me ask you a question. Who are we to identify with? Are we to identify with the tax collector saved, overflowing with joy, and so pouring out? Or are we to identify with the religious person? Because here's the answer for you in a good theological way. Obviously the tax collector, because see what it says is, this whole story stands in for a metaphor at the very end of Jesus' journey, and the next thing he's going to say, which is the 10 talents, is speaking directly to this. Here's what he's saying. The Jews who were looking for the Lord failed to find him. Why? Because he was just part of their life. The religious leader was rich, and godly. Jesus, God, was part of his life. And you don't find him there. The other person, what the scripture says is, the Jews who were trying to find the Lord failed to find him. The Gentiles who were not looking for him did. And that's Zacchaeus, right? He stands in for the Gentiles who weren't looking for him, and then God finds them. 
right? He invited everybody in, but they didn't come because they had other things to do, says the parable, right? And then he says, he goes out and he compels people in. And these are the people, the people from the, the byways and the highways, the people that are beaten and trodden down, and they find the Lord, and they are overflowing with joy. God has come to me. This is fantastic, right? So who we're to identify with is a tax collector, right? Yes, absolutely, good theology. Right up until we become a religious person. And then we start identifying with the religious person, don't we? You see, when you've, been a, when you've been a Christian for a long time, he starts becoming part of your life, an extremely important part of your life. Let's not make any mistake about this. How important is you go to church, you probably even do devotionals, you tithe, you do everything. He's an extremely important part of your life. And then there's something that's bugging you inside. And it eats at you. It makes you feel bad. It makes you feel pressed down. It makes you feel... See, we're not talking about sin now. We're not talking about what I did last night or what I did whatever, right? We're not talking about sin. We're talking about a way of living your life where you know that God has something better for you, but you do still kind of want to do the other thing. And so what do you do? You kind of justify what it is that you're doing. You start building a facade with God. Right? You see it? You start doing this thing to make it work out. Hopefully. Becca Joe, come on up. I asked her beforehand, so okay, you don't have to feel too bad for her, although you should be feeling really bad for her right now. <laughs> okay? Now turn around. Here's 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 the way that Christian life gets walked all the time. In the beginning, joy, 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 joy. But then just life. Lots of time. Lots of decisions, lots of other things, lots of choices, not all for God. And as you make those things, it starts to weigh on you, and you're trying to justify it, and you're trying to make it feel right. But this thing is now pressing down on you to the point that you could start your walk with joy and get to a place where Christianity is a burden. A weight pressing down on you, right? Because you're trying to, you know you should be doing this. Why do I not do the things that I want to do and don't do the things that I do and get that out of sin? Don't talk about sin when we're talking about that. Why don't I, right? In fact, the way the scripture says it, stay right here with me. Thank you, you're doing great. I have this complaint against you. You don't love me like you did at first. Right? Do you? Anybody who's been a Christian over 10 years, have you gone through a season of time where you were conscious of the fact that you do not love Jesus at this point in time like you did when you first met him? Right? This is real. This is a burden. This is a weight. And when we do that, aren't we falling short of the glory of God still? 
Aren't we falling short of what God has for us, which is, what did he say? Freedom, life, and that abundantly? What's going on? We're being weighed down by all of this. In fact, we're back to Adam and Eve trying to cover up. We're doing the same thing at Adam and Eve when they first sinned, and that is trying to cover up so that maybe he'll not see. You see it? We put on fig trees of going to church. We put on fig trees of tithing. We put on fig trees of whatever it is in order to sort of cover up that we're in part, not in whole. You see it? But what if our failures are not to make us feel like scum? What if our failures are just trying to teach us that we still need a Savior? Right now, I need the God who sets me free from what? Me. <laughs> he sets me free from sin. And sin's definition is C-U-R-T. Right? He's setting me free from me. <laughs> Paul says it this way. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free from reaping from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What if you start understanding that we think, we think, and God, we got to get rid of this. We think that what God cares about is that we're sinners. What he's trying to point out to us is that we're sinners. <laughs> Do you see it? We think that that's what he cares about, and that's what messes us up. And what he's been trying to do is, is my God, I'm at 2,500 years of proving it to you. At some point in time, why don't you give up and say you are? <laughs> why don't you own it? Why don't you stand in it, not to get licensed to go ahead and do whatever you want to do, but to start saying, I need help. I need deliverance. I need a Savior who will do things that I cannot. Right? This is never to give license to us to go, well, I'm a sinner. I may as well go ahead and do it. That's what Rome Paul has, to, Paul has to deal with over and over in Romans, right? If you really understand what Paul is saying, these people take it and twist it to say, well, should we sin more then so that we get more grace? And Paul says, well, that's just moronic. What I'm trying to do is set you free by understanding what sets you free. And it turns out not to be we. Us. The only thing that sets us free is God. The amazing, incredible, magnificent, joyous thing that he does. And so all of a sudden, here's what I want you to do. You're sitting here and you're living this life and it's getting weighed down and Christianity's become a burden and you're not sure and you're, you're, you're ginning up joy because you know you're supposed to be, but it's hard because you're, you're at odds with yourself and you're fighting with yourself and you're doing this. And all of a sudden, one day you just say, out of hell with it. <laughs> I give up. I cannot. I know who I am. I cannot. 
That doesn't mean I'm not going to keep trying, but I'm going to start trying in the way that God would have me try, which is not to go after eternal life and sinlessness. It's to go after my Savior, Jesus. Not just my friend, my Savior. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, she gets to be free. Now you got to be free and dancing. <laughs> but do you see it? When she finally throws off herself and the religion that she has brought herself under, she is free to dance. I love you. Thank you. <laughs> right? Which is to say, let him fill you with joy. Which is to say, let him fill you with overflowing joy. Which is to say, let him fill you with who? Himself. He who is life and that abundantly. He who is joy and that abundantly. He who is love by definition. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Apple of his eye, you. Wow. Why do you count? Because he loves you. Right? And he wants to set you free from yourself. Memorial Day. Don't forget what it costs you because that'll get you off base. If you forget what freedom costs, you abuse it. You take it for granted. You think, that it's you think that it is the normal state of things. It's not. The normal state of things is bondage. The normal state of things is decay. The normal state of things is destruction. The normal state of things is bad. It is God that brings good. Don't you know only God is good? And oh man, is he good. So remember on Memorial Day, not just Memorial Day, every day, remember what it cost to set you free. But then don't enter into it condemned. He's the one that sets you free from that. Enter into it by thanking him and rejoicing. Can we do that? Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, this congregation comes before you and we enter in with joy. We enter with thanksgiving. We enter with praise. Stand up, would you? Just begin to praise him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. We enter in with joy. We enter in with thanksgiving. We enter in with praise. We enter into you, not to some abstracted thing. We enter into you who saves us. We enter into you who loves us. We enter into you who calls us out of that tree and says, quick, come down. I must be with you. I must save you. And we say, thank you for saving us. Praise your name, rejoicing under the God of gods, the Lord of lords, under the one who has chosen to save me and set me free. Thank you, God. Glory to your name forever and ever. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Go ahead. Sorry, but sit down again. This is a Catholic church today, up and down. Okay? All right? Too bright. Thanks. Uh, pull out this cup before you. Okay? There is a way that we have broken our life, and its name is religion. Its name is a, is a thing that thinks that you can do it. And when you get under that burden, you are hopelessly crushed by yourself. Okay? You cannot. It doesn't mean you don't keep working. It doesn't mean you don't keep trying. It just means you understand who's the one that can actually do it. So in Jesus' name, we lift this cup in which is a broken body, which is my life. 
I have broken it. And we put our fingers in there and crush it. Love that sound, God. It reminds us. It reminds us of who we are, but it reminds us of you on the cross. High and lifted up. Doing the most loving thing that has ever been done in the history of mankind. Hallelujah, Lord God. Hallelujah, Lord God. Hallelujah. We praise, praise you, God. In Jesus' name, thank you, Jesus, for what you did. And we take this broken body now that we might be made whole. Because by your stripes we were healed. Take together. And now we lift this cup in which is life, baby, life, glorious life. God, thank you for life, overflowing, abundant, magnificent life. God, you already have it for us. We just keep getting distracted and pulled away, just like the word said in the beginning. But in Jesus' holy and precious name, God, we choose you. We choose what only you can do. We choose to let you take us and move us into the path of life. If you are here and you do not know the Lord, what a beautiful time to say yes and amen, which means so be it. Yes, God, I give you my life. I want the life that you have for me instead. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, say that between you and he. And then with everybody that is in here saying the same exact thing, we take this cup to say, God, I want your life. Bring it into me in fullness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Ushers, come forward.